The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be discussing one of the most important and terrifying issues of the 21st century, artificial intelligence. With the recent advancement of generative AI technology like ChatGPT, a huge debate is already underway about whether AI technology will set us free or wipe us off the face of the earth. So today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Max Tegmark, who's one of the world's leading experts on AI and one of its most thoughtful critics. We're going to get into everything you need to know about AI technology and why some scientists are saying we need to pump the brakes on its development ASAP. For our paid subscribers, we're also going to be dropping exclusive bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. Last week, we published Lever's interview with Abraham Josephine Reisman, the author of the new biography Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America, which looks at McMahon's influence and pro wrestling's influence on American politics. And coming up next week is the extended interview with Dr. Tegmark that you're about to hear. It's the part of the discussion where he goes really deep on the specific kinds of safety measures that can be taken to prevent the most dangerous forms of AI from threatening society. He also discusses how if those safety measures are put in place, AI could do everything from curing disease to stopping climate change to ending poverty. So stay tuned for that in the Lever Premium podcast feed. If you want to access our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That'll give you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed, exclusive live events, and all of the in-depth reporting and investigative journalism that we do here at the Lever. The only way independent media grows and thrives is because of passionate supporters and by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. So go subscribe. It directly funds the work that we do. I'm here today with Lever Times producer, producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. Very exciting week here at The Lever. I'm really looking forward to your conversation with Dr. Tegmark about AI. I know AI is something that I'm constantly thinking about and sometimes worrying about. So excited to get the the deep dive from you too. Also, uh, we had a big episode of Movies versus Capitalism this week. Historian Harvey Kay joined us to talk about the Disney live-action musical Newsies, and it's a really, really good episode, uh, very fun, and Harvey provided a lot of historical context for us, so uh, people should go and check it out. You can find it at mvcpod.com. It's part of the Levers Podcast Network. Uh, Newsies, I, I believe, has a scene of um, police punching kids in the face. Yep. Uh, a kind of out of control uh, 
depiction, although maybe a, maybe a realistic depiction, I, I guess, um, and a good a good topic for a show about uh, what are the meta messages being sent by movies when it comes to uh, politics, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to everything uh, like that. Uh, and yes, I am super psyched about uh, this week's interview about uh, artificial intelligence. I've been thinking about and worried about artificial intelligence since I first saw the Terminator movie. Uh, so I guess that's like 30, maybe 40 years of worrying about artificial intelligence. You started you started worrying very early. You were like, I got to start worrying about this immediately. Absolutely. I mean, you see that movie. I mean, the, isn't the, the first scene is like a, a an artificial intelligence powered uh, tank driving over a pile of skulls, right? I mean, it's like the the robots have uh, are winning uh, the war. Uh, and uh, that kind of burned into my mind as, I guess, a, a child who probably saw it at an inappropriately young age, which is probably why I've been worried about artificial intelligence, because I was essentially scarred by James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger at too young an age. Now, before we get into that, let's take a little time here to touch on some of the stuff that also has been happening at The Lever, our reporting that we do, and I hope everyone who's listening is a subscriber. We've done a lot of reporting in the last few days on the Supreme Court. We've talked about it on this show a lot as well. Uh, ProPublica, of course, recently reported that Clarence Thomas had failed to disclose two decades worth of luxury trips uh, and a real estate purchase provided by a conservative billionaire. That has been in the news all over the place. And we have uh, contributed to that reporting uh, with two big stories over the last week. The first was about how Clarence Thomas helped kill an eviction ban that was directly threatening the same billionaire's business. So there's been this whole idea out there that Clarence Thomas got these gifts from this billionaire, but the billionaire never supposedly had any real business before the Supreme Court. So in theory, oh, well, it's no big deal. Clarence Thomas is just you know living the high life off of this billionaire's gifts. But since the billionaire supposedly didn't have business before the Supreme Court, it's all cool. But our story showed that actually uh, the billionaire, uh, his company, effectively admitted that they had interests in decisions before the case. Thomas voted to end federal tenant protections that Harlan Crow, that's the name of the billionaire, that his company literally said threatened its real estate profit margins. That's in the documents in Harlan Crow's company. So put, put the two situations together. Thomas is getting gifts from Harlan Crow. Harlan Crow's company is saying that eviction moratoria are hurting or potentially hurting its business profits. And then Thomas votes twice to end the eviction moratorium. Now, producer Frank, I've heard it thrown out there, you know, oh, well, listen, maybe that's Sirota, maybe that's true. You know, fine, it's we'll stipulate that that that's true. But Clarence Thomas is already super conservative and would have voted to end the eviction ban anyway. So now the new argument for why supposedly this corruption doesn't matter is because, well, okay, fine. The guy had uh, some business interests in front of the court, but since Clarence Thomas is already a right-wing extremist, he was already going to vote that way, so the money doesn't matter. I mean, what, what do you make of that nonsense? I, I wouldn't call it nonsense. I would call it total bullshit is what I would call it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't care uh, whether or not he would have voted this this way anyway. I don't want my unelected council of elders who serve <laughs> lifetime appointments on the highest court in the land to be receiving any fucking gifts from anybody for any reason, <laughs> especially ones that they're not disclosing. 
it's complete like the impropriety is out of control and anyone who defends this in any way is just doing mental backflips to, to find a justification for it it's like people man we put out stories all the time about all of the dark money all of the conservative dark money in our political system and we'll get replies from people that are like well what about george soros it's like they're, they're both bad it's it's all bad. Why can't we just be like we know we don't want any of this money. We don't want any of this influence. So that's sorry. I just got a little heated, but no. Yeah, I mean, listen. I mean, I, 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 I'm. I look. Money is is either corrupting or it's not. The Supreme Court, of course, has tried to insist that it's actually not corrupting, uh, which we've continued to report on. I mean, from the Citizens United decision and many other decisions to try to insist that, that money spent in politics is just not not corrupting, not influential, which is also a whole lot of horseshit. Uh, but in this case, I mean, the argument that, well, Clarence Thomas is a, is a freakish extremist. So the money that or the gifts that he got uh, didn't change him or influence him. He was al- always a freakish extremist. I, I don't even know how to respond to that other than to say it's it's a lot of garbage. It's a lot of bullshit, as you said. Now, there has been talk of once again, talk has come up. It's come up in the past as well. Talk of imposing an ethics code on the Supreme Court. And we broke a story about this as well. Some Democrats are finally starting to talk about using Congress's power to force the Supreme Court to follow a basic set of ethics and anti-corruption rules. The story that we broke was uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, who, by the way, declined the Senate Judiciary's Committee to testify at a hearing about all this. John Roberts also, documents show, threatened Congress with a legal challenge to or not following any ethics rules that Congress tried to impose on the Supreme Court. I mean, you cannot make this up that back in 2011, John Roberts suggested that if the co-equal branch of government, the Congress that's supposed to make the laws, passed a law putting in place basic ethics rules, by the way, that other government agencies have to follow, that if Congress tried to do that with the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court might ignore it, might legally challenge it on constitutional grounds. Now, Roberts did this also The pressure for reviewing the Clarence Thomas situation, also new revelations about Neil Gorsuch and a land deal, uh, also new revelations about John Roberts's wife making millions of dollars, placing uh, lawyers at law firms who have uh, business before the Supreme Court, that the pressure on the Supreme Court to conduct at least an internal review, John Roberts uh, moved that review to a secret panel of lower court judges and will not disclose the names of the people on the panel. So under pressure, he said, I'm not testifying before Congress. I've already told Congress that the Supreme Court may not even uh, listen to anything, uh, any laws that you pass about uh, ethics at the court. On top of that, I've taken the allegations of all of this massive corruption and I've put them in a secret panel that you're not allowed, the public is not allowed to even know who's on the panel. I mean, this this is insane. It's completely insane. I, It's always amazing to see, you know, we see it usually more from the conservative side, but just the willingness to just 
like flip everyone the bird and just be like, yo, we're not, I'm not doing what you want me to do. Like you want me to, you want me to testify at an ethics hearing? Nah, I'm good on that. You want us to investigate ourselves? Nah, I'm not going to do that. The audacity is really, it's, it's astonishing. But I think it reflects the normalization of a lack of accountability. I mean, we are yes. now live in a world where the expectation is that the most powerful people in this country simply do not have to uh, respond to political pressure, simply do not have to follow the basic rules, the basic etiquette, the basic uh, ethical conduct that we're supposed to expect uh, of public officials. I mean, there is just a, it's just completely normalized that there are no consequences for the most powerful people uh, in this country when they do things like this. And these corruption scandals are not the Democrats' fault. I want to be clear about that. But when I see Dick Durbin of the Senate Judiciary Committee saying essentially, well, the Supreme Court has to conduct an investigation, I'm like, dude, do your fucking job. You're, you're on the Judiciary Committee. You've been a senator for like a billion years in a safe state. And your response to like flagrant in your face corruption is like, well, they better do something about that. It's like, dude, why are you there? What, what is your point as a senator on the Judiciary Committee? Your point should be, I am now going to make you do things or at least try to build the political coalition in Congress to make you do certain things. And it's worth mentioning that in the past, the proposals for an ethics code at the Supreme Court, some of them came from Republicans. So in theory, there could actually be some Republican support for a basic code of ethics at the Supreme Court. But when you have Democrats like Dick Durbin who want to insist, listen, I'm, I'm, I can't, we can't do anything. We're not going to even try to do anything. Then you start to wonder whether the entire game, the whole shebang is rigged. That should be the slogan of the Democratic Party is someone should do something about this. <laughs> yeah. So, somebody, somebody call somebody, not us. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's how it feels every day. All right. It's time to get to our big interview about artificial intelligence, by the way, something that I think somebody should probably do something about. Uh, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main interview today, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, otherwise known as AI, otherwise known as something I've been terrified by since I saw the Terminator movies four decades ago. Uh, in the last year, advancements in generative AI have exploded across the internet. There have been AI image generators like DAL-E that can create photorealistic images from a simple suggestion. And of course, there's ChatGPT which was released last November, which has access to almost all of the world's online knowledge and has the capacity to write anything from college papers to legal contracts. Advocates for AI, the triumphalists, they say it could become the most transformative technology in human history. But there are critics who say it has the potential to do the opposite. And it's not just James Cameron and the Terminator. Depending on who you're speaking to, Concerns range from AI is going to take all of our jobs to AI could wipe humans off the face of the planet. This may seem hyperbolic to some. Folks say it's, the next step is not going to be Skynet. But there is a very important aspect of this story to consider. 
Most AI research and development are being conducted by private companies, meaning companies that are more likely to be concerned with cornering the market and raking in massive profits rather than prioritizing the responsible implementation of this technology. And if there's one thing we know here at The Lever about private companies, it's that they rarely do the right thing on their own out of the goodness of their own hearts. They rarely do the right thing unless there's public pressure and proper regulation. They rarely prioritize the public good over private profit unless there is accountability and oversight. That may be why this past March, the Future of Life Institute, which is a nonprofit organization whose goal is to steer transformative technology towards benefiting life and away from extreme large-scale risks, why this organization published an open letter calling for AI laboratories to immediately pause experiments on the training of AI systems more powerful than GPT-4 for at least six months. That's jargon for saying, slow it down, because this may go in a really dangerous direction. This letter was signed by Elon Musk. It was signed by Apple's co-founder, Steve Wozniak, amongst many others who were concerned with the rapid development of AI technology. So today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Eric Tegmark, who's the president of the Future of Life Institute, an AI researcher at MIT, and one of the world's leading experts on AI technology. And he's also one of AI technology's most prominent critics. He has likened the uncontrolled development of artificial intelligence to the premise of the movie Don't Look Up, which I co-created with Adam McKay. He has likened the technology to the asteroid headed towards Earth. What follows here is an interview with Dr. Tegmark as we explore the potential upsides and the potential terrifying downsides of AI, what you should be afraid of, what the benefits could be, and what we all should really be afraid of. Hey, Max, how you doing? Good. It's an honor to meet you. Yes. Well, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. Uh, as I've said, uh, artificial intelligence is something that I've been terrified by since I uh, first saw the Terminator many, many years ago. Um, so I want to start with what artificial intelligence actually is. I, I think people have a maybe a vague concept of it from movies, whether it's Terminator or whether it's Star Trek, the guys like talking to the computers and the like. So for those who don't really know what we're talking about in this actual reality, as opposed to a, a movie, what is artificial intelligence? And specifically, tell us some of the recent developments in generative AI technology uh, and, and where we are uh, in the, I guess, pursuit of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think people often overcomplicate and turn, twist themselves into knots trying to define AI. Artificial intelligence is non-biological intelligence. It's really that simple. So then, of course, you should ask me, well, what's intelligence? And uh, there, the most relevant and interesting definition is simply define intelligence as the ability to accomplish goals. If your goal is to win chess games, then you're more intelligent if you beat the other chess computer. If your goal is um, more complicated than that, you know, that's more broad, 
then you're getting closer to what the, the ultimate holy grail has always been for AI research, which is to build machines that can accomplish all goals as well as humans or better. And if you look at the history, whenever we humans have figured out something about how our bodies work, we build machines that do it better. So during the Industrial Revolution, we figured out how to make machines that were stronger than us and faster than us. And more recently, people started to realize, hey, this intelligence thing, you know, it's all about information processing. And we can build that in silicon rather than just having it in our, our squishy brains. It went much slower than people thought initially. It turned out to be really hard. So the phrase was coined, artificial intelligence, actually here around MIT in the 60s. Slow progress. Uh, we got our butt kicked in chess, you know, decades ago. Then the intelligence was still programmed in by humans who knew how to play chess. More recently, things have gotten a lot faster when we realized that we could let the machines learn like children on their own from data and from playing against each other. And um, last year, we've seen on the consumer market some really spectacular stuff. The famous Turing test, for example, which very vaguely speaking is about doing language as well as humans. We now have GPT-4, which writes better than most Americans and which scores higher than 90% of all Americans on the, on the bar exam. This has taken a lot of folks by surprise who thought we had many, many decades to figure out what we were going to do when we were on the verge of getting overtaken by machines across the board, when it might actually be the case that it's going to happen, that it's almost happened already. Well, I, I, when I think of the real world idea of artificial intelligence, I, I think of, what is it? B Big Blue, right? The, the chess Big player. Blue. Right? You, you, yeah, you, you mentioned that. The, the machine that beat the best chess players in, in the world. We've got, I mean, and that was a while ago. And so the, I think one of the things that, that I have a question about is the last year, you just mentioned that, that the last year there have been these, these advancements that it seemed like you didn't hear much about it. And then in the last year, actually the last six months, three months, you've heard a ton about it. I guess what were the, the big developments that suddenly happened? Was there like some, some moment recently over the last year, two years where we, we figured something out or the artificial intelligence itself figured something out that, uh, that is allowing it to advance much more quickly than, than it had been advancing uh, in the past 10 or 20 years? It's a great question. So I'll say two things. First of all, there wasn't any great development that happened all of a sudden just now, except the development that media suddenly started talking about it a lot. It's <laughs> okay. been a very quite steady progress in the industry. And a lot of people therefore were very much in denial about it until suddenly, you know, they could try ChatGPT or GPT-4 themselves. There is a very important technical thing. The reason progress was so slow, even after humans got defeated in chess, was because all the intelligence had to be put in by humans, and that takes time, right? And humans have to always figure out how to make the machines do stuff. That's not how a child learns, right? Children can get much better than their parents because they can figure it out for themselves. Mm. And the machine learning revolution has replicated that in silicon. And uh, the same thing is happening now across so many other areas that humans used to be better at. So, for example, for, for language, we still can't figure out how to write a program ourselves in some human programming language to write perfect English grammar and understand everything perfectly that people are talking about and try, 
translated into other languages. But it turned out we didn't need to. We just have this machine learning tool which goes and reads everything on the internet and it somehow figures it out in a way that we don't fully understand. Can I, can I stop you there? Because so, I, I think that's a really important point and actually a really scary point. Is it, I mean, is it fair to say that we have built the seeds of a technology that can then evolve into something and that we ourselves don't understand how the thing that we seeded, this thing that we created, we don't understand how it evolved. I mean, I mean, that's the classic, you know, we built, we built a monster, you know, we, yeah. we've created a monster. It's one thing to say, I, I created a machine that did something that did something bad or could do something bad. And I understand how it, I cre how it was created and what it did. But that point about how we don't understand how the thing we created uh, did what it did. I mean, that to me seems like the central scariest part of this, right? That's the, unfortunately thought on, you know, when GPT-J convinced this Belgian man apparently to commit suicide or when um, ChatGPT tried to persuade this journalist in New York to leave his wife, it wasn't because some ill-spirited uh, dude at one of the companies was like, ha, 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 I'm going to program this in to mess with these people. No, they had no idea that was going to happen. It, they really didn't understand how it worked. As to the monster, though, we have to be clear on what, what the monster is that we're creating. Right now, a language model like GPT-4 is not itself the complete monster. It's just a so-called oracle, which can only answer questions, right? It's not itself able to directly do things in the world. So the monster actually is the greatest ecosystem that that's part of. The real monster is actually, it has a name. Have you heard of Moloch? Yes, I, I, that, that rings a bell, yeah. So Moloch is uh, the same monster that off, so often lets, makes us humans fall really short of our potential by putting us in these weird races to the bottom. If you have a bunch of countries that end up overfishing a part of an ocean so that everybody loses out, everybody saw what was happening, but nobody could do anything about it because if they if they stopped overfishing, the others would keep going and everybody had an incentive. To f and arms races are like that. Today, when people try to slow down AI, the most common response is, but China, you know, and, and that's, of course, what Chinese researchers probably get told, too, if they want to slow down. So the interesting thing is now we have all these companies led by people who I have had the honor to get to speak with uh, myself or good people who generally realize that this is really scary, but they also realize they can't stop alone because then some other companies are going to crush them. So these commercial forces just keep making us build ever more powerful things that we, that we understand less and less. So the monster itself, actually, right now, it's a human-machine hybrid. It includes corporations under these weird commercial pressures and the super-powerful AI. And that's actually kind of interesting match made in heaven or somewhere else, if you're so inclined. So now we're <laughs> yeah. getting this artificial intelligence, with, which is all made of humans, like an old-fashioned corporation, married with the artificial kind to just make ever more profit. And it's... We are losing control over this in a big way as a democracy of this monster. And the thing that keeps me awake at night is I see a future where soon this 
human machine hybrid monster is going to have less and less need for humans. You can start replacing more and more of the human roles by automated roles. And we might very soon be in a situation where the machines are so smart, you don't need any humans at all. And by that point, by that time, of course, it's going to be uh, too late for us to do anything about it. And before we get to that, I just want to go back to something technical that's an important, I think, important for people to understand. Um, as I've been learning about this, the, the, the difference between levels of artificial yeah. intelligence. Now, there's AGI, artificial general intelligence, and there is super intelligence. I want you to tell us the difference between those right. two things. And when you tell us the difference between those two things, then tell us what we know or what we think we know about how long it may take to go from artificial general intelligence to super intelligence. Let's start with, with general intelligence without the word artificial in front of it. That's the easiest one to understand. Sure. That's what you have. That's what a human child has. A human child can get quite good at anything if they put in enough effort to learn it, right? And artificial general intelligence just means it's non-biological general intelligence. The artificial intelligence we have today is short of that. It's always narrower. Yeah, it can out-multiply us. It can memorize massive databases much better than we can. But there's still a lot of things it cannot do. The list of things that machines cannot do better than us, though, it keeps shrinking, as you've probably noticed. <laughs> but that that's <clears throat> narrow intelligence, stuff which is short of, of general intelligence. What about superintelligence? That's intelligence which is just way, way above general intelligence, much like most people would agree that our intelligence is just way above that of a cockroach, for example. Why might that happen really soon? It seems really unlikely at first, right, if it took so long even to not quite get the general. Well, the reason is, so far, the whole reason it's taken so long is because we humans have had to develop it. We had to invent it. We had to build it. And we're slow. But remember, by definition, general intelligence means you can do all jobs. That includes the job of AI development. That includes your job. It includes my job. So as soon as we get there, that means Google can replace its thousands and thousands of uh, AI developers and replace them by machines who don't need any other salary except some electricity. It can work 24-7 and also dramatically faster than humans, and you can make millions of them or billions of these virtual employees if you need to. So it's very likely that the timescale for further improvement will shrink a lot. It's not going to be the human timescale of years anymore. Maybe it'll be months, weeks, hours, minutes. You'll get to the point where you have artificial intelligence, which is way more beyond us than we are beyond squirrels, for example. And at that point, it's pretty obvious that there's a there's a real possibility that we're going to lose control over it. Right. There's there's geologic time. There's human time, and then there's computer processing time. Yeah. And I, 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 I it's definitely obvious th those are different speeds, and the speed of of the processing time. When you think about the computers essentially teaching themselves yeah. uh, things uh, and they never have to sleep. They never have to eat. Uh, there can be thousands and thousands, millions and millions of them uh, uh, doing this. I mean, 
I mean, that's a speed that I think it, it's hard for the human mind uh, to get to get yeah. a handle on. So let's talk about uh, the warning uh, that you and your organization have put out there. Yeah, just to add to that, I'm so glad you're bringing it sure. down to these fundamental basic facts here. You know, I can think about one thing per second, maybe, you know, my laptop that I'm using right now to talk with you, it does about one billion things per second. Also, the amount of, of thinking stuff I can put in my head is, you know, I have 100 terabytes of information here. So do you. Sounds like a lot, right? But it's nothing compared to what you can put in a big server farm somewhere. When, once you get beyond the human scale and start going super intelligence, the laws of physics, they do put a limit on how smart it can get. But that's about a million, 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 million times above where we are. I, I've started to think of AGI as standing informally, not for artificial general intelligence, but just artificial godlike intelligence. To come back to your question then, so why did we warn people? Because people actually at the top of the field of AI have warned about this for close to 100 years now. Alan Turing warned about this. Norbert Wiener warned about this uh, in the 1960s. Irving J. Good wrote this fantastic paper where he just pointed out the simple fact that once you get to AGI, you can get likely get this recursive self-improvement going and we humans will soon be left behind in the dust. And uh, he, he pointed out that that will be the last invention we humans ever need to make because after that, machines can invent everything for us, provided, he says, <laughs> that the machine is docile enough to let us control it. So what all of these folks warned about for all these decades was that when we start getting close to AGI, we need to uh, make sure we don't proceed any further until we figured out how we're going to control this, either by making the machines always do what's good for humanity because they somehow obey some humans, or because we can't control them, but we've made sure that their goals are just aligned with ours. Like, uh, sadly, the progress in AI has gone much faster than our progress in figuring out how to align it to what's good for us. That's why I was involved in launching this open letter saying, hey, let's take a six month pause and set in place safety standards that future systems need to meet. And I want to and I want to talk about those standards, but I, you know, I'm thinking so much about the speed of this stuff. I mean, I think about it this way, that it took thousands and thousands of years of natural uh, uh, carbon-based evolution. Yeah. And you have this great term called carbon, carbon chauvinists, where you, you, yeah, you, you, where people seem to think that intelligence can only come from organic yeah. life and, 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 and thousands and thousands of years of, you know, the survival of the fittest uh, evolution and the like natural selection uh, created is ultimately the human brain. Uh, that essentially the uh, computer powered intelligence can speed up that uh, process uh, uh, for intelligence uh, through computer processing power at a much faster pace uh, than natural selection and and essentially natural yeah. evolution. So those are the things I think we have to to think about. And I think you're you're, you're right in in pointing out that we have to be able to think about how just because we're an organic species being a carbon based being doesn't mean we have a monopoly on intelligence. Uh, and, and I think that it's hard for people to understand because I think a lot of people think about, well, there are people, there are animals and there are robots and computers and 
these things are certain they certainly are different, but it doesn't mean that the robots and the computers uh, can't have an intelligence. And there are obviously there are philosophical questions that come with this, which is like, well, what is what is being alive mean? I mean, is the is something that's super intelligent, that's not carbon based, that's a machine. Is that alive? Does does it does it have have feelings? And those are kind of philosophical questions. But I want to bring it back to the point that you made about putting in place standards. Let's dig down into that. The six month pause. Okay. Uh, private companies don't want to do that. They, you know, as you mentioned, they're in a kind of technological arms race because if they don't, if one of them doesn't do it, then they think the other one will do it and make money off it and the like. And that's a bad kind of dynamic for there to be. But let's say you could wave a wand and yeah. put some rules in place, right? I mean, at a policy level where you could pass a law, you could, I don't know, write a specific set of code into the artificial intelligence. Like, what specifically are we talking about there? Yeah. So coming back to your question, what sort of safety standards do we want? Well, let's start by just becoming like biology. You know, in biotech, if you want to launch a new vaccine, for example, you can't just start selling it in supermarkets before you've first demonstrated that it's safe. There is a regulatory authority in every country you have to go to and provide evidence. This is actually going to do more harm than good. Then you can sell it. AI researchers, in part because of lobbying, I think also have would have a very hard time getting sympathy from their biotech friends because they would basically say, no, 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 you should be able to, biotech should be free. Anyone who wants should be able to sell any medicine openly on the internet. And uh, if people want to buy it, they buy it. No, if it's something that has the potential of creating harm, and AI obviously has the potential to create way more harm than biotech ever has, the onus should be on the companies to demonstrate that the thing are safe and having a product that you if you come and say well i have no idea really how this works but i'm pretty sure it's uh safe you know that wouldn't fly in biology and it shouldn't fly in when it's ai systems that actually impact people's lives either so with that basic principle i think it shouldn't be the responsibility of politicians to have to figure out what the safety standard should be it should be the responsibility of the companies to demonstrate the safety yeah, I mean, I, I think about it in terms of, of pharmaceuticals as an example. I mean, I, the scandals in pharmaceuticals, uh, there's pricing scandals, obviously, but there's also scandals in when the pharmaceutical companies have too much control over something like the FDA. But the FDA exists yeah. to make sure that when drugs come to market, that the drugs are have been tested uh, and are safe. And if a drug company can't get FDA approval for their drug, then the drug doesn't go to market. That's how the system is supposed to work. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of system like that uh, when it comes uh, to artificial intelligence. Is part of the reason it doesn't exist is because it's hard to define exactly what AI is and isn't. In other words, we know what a drug is, okay? It's a vaccine or a pill or whatever. It's a chemical compound. Artificial intelligence uh, seems to be a kind of broad term uh, for potentially many different applications of the technology. And so saying something is safe now, if these things, if artificial intelligence can can learn on its own, something may be safe now, but how do we know it won't learn to be unsafe later? No, excellent points. I don't think the main reason we don't have effective regulation of AI is because 
it's hard to define. In fact, it's just one of the favorite excuses lobbyists like to get. Oh, give. Oh, we just it's too hard to define. I think the real reason is two. There are two reasons. One is lobbying. Of course, any company will not want to be regulated, and there was a lot of resistance from tobacco companies also to be regulated, as you'll recall. So it's just natural. You can't blame them for defending their their interests. The second reason is it's just gone so fast. Technology has progressed much quicker than policymakers are used to responding. And I think even a lot of uh, of the researchers, this happened so quickly, they're still used to AI not having any real impact on society, being more like a philosophy, which there's no need to regulate, in my opinion. Uh, I want to get into the, uh, the arguments uh, that are being made by uh, the industry to prevent regulation. Uh, and you had a piece in Time Magazine likening uh, much of the situation to Don't Look Up, uh, the movie that I helped co-create uh, movie. And, and you've, you've kind of likened um, artificial intelligence as the asteroid uh, in the movie. And you've kind of likened uh, the response to the asteroid that was in the movie to the response that we've seen uh, by whether private companies, lobbyists, uh, and the like, uh, the response that they've offered uh, to the concerns and the push for regulation. So why don't you give us a sense of some of the most prominent arguments that basically say either there's nothing to be afraid of, or arguments say that even if there are things to be afraid of, we shouldn't really do anything about sure. it. Sure. So to start answering your questions and what the arguments are, let's be clear what the asteroid is. The asteroid that I wrote about in that time article is super intelligence. Okay. It's not losing our jobs, etc. Plenty of people are talking about that. The asteroid is the idea that we are on the verge of building something where we, that we can completely lose control over where we might actually, first of all, our democracy might get killed by some tech company effectively becoming our government by getting this monopoly that nobody else can compete against by having billions of basically free digital employees that nobody can compete with. Uh, and then I think it's very likely that um, at some point, someone in that tech company, will they will lose control over the tech when it gets too smart and, and the machines themselves will be in charge. And, you know, this is not a new, this idea that we could get hit by this kind of asteroid isn't new. This was something I, Irving J. Good warned about in the 60s, as we discussed. It's the default outcome, unless we can figure out a way of making it safe. I don't want to put a damper on your afternoon, but I think the most likely outcome, if that happens, is that humanity goes extinct. It's not going to be like in Terminator, which freaked you out, or that somehow some <laughs> robots come after you and are like directly trying to kill you. It's more like you know, you're trying to build a hydroelectric dam to get some green energy and, oh... There are some animals living there, you know, uh, uh, tough luck for the animals, right? It's not that you hated the animals, but you had another goal. It wasn't really aligned with theirs and you're smarter. So you're going to get your way. If, if uh, super intelligence takes over earth, they're going to probably want to compute all sorts of cool stuff that we don't understand. So they probably want to maximize how much they can compute here. Maybe they want to cover earth with compute facilities. So too bad. They're not going to just chop down the rainforest like we do of less intelligent species, but they might want to get rid of the cities too, so they can build there. Or maybe maybe they, maybe they feel that um, the oxygen in the atmosphere makes the machines rust too much, so they'll get rid of the oxygen, whatever. Uh, we are like a sideshow. They, they will, by default, pay about as much attention to us as we pay to ants and other life forms if they're super intelligent. And it's just very inconvenient to have to share the planet with, with more intelligent entities that, that don't really care about us. That's why it's so important 
that we don't build that until after we figured out how to align it, how to make it actually do what's good for us and ideally do what we want it to do. So that's the asteroid. It's super intelligence. And I, I find it so stunning how still almost no one wants to talk about it. Like I've been on a gazillion interviews since we did the open letter. And I can tell even the journalists don't want to talk about the asteroid. They're like, yeah, let's talk about jobs. Let's talk about this information. And as soon as I'm like, what about the asteroid? They're like, oh, no, but that's long-term stuff. That's too speculative. And I'm like, what's so long-term about like two years from now? You know, I, I've, been, I've been warning about this and working very actively to educate about this for about nine years now. I, let's be organizing AI conferences, bringing together the worry warts with the experts. And I, I wrote this book, like 3.0, warning about this and so on. And I was wrong about something, which I probably would not have been wrong about if I had watched your movie earlier. But I couldn't in my wildest dreams imagine that we humans would have such a lackadaisical response to it. I, I, and then look what happens. A bunch of companies declare openly, we are going to build AGI. And then they spend a bunch of time doing it. And even when it's they themselves admit that they're starting to get close. And like the CEO of OpenAI, for example, openly talked about how the worst case scenario is like lights out for all of us. Even then, uh, there's still a lot more attention paid to... Uh, reality TV shows and other things like this then to this. So when I read watched the movie, it was like, oh my God, how could I be so dumb? And 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 uh, not realized how dysfunctional our, our public conversation has become. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our supporting subscribers who get Lever Time Premium, you're going to get to hear next week's bonus episode, which is the extended interview with Dr. Tegmark, where he goes deep on the specific kinds of safety measures that can be taken to prevent the most dangerous forms of AI from threatening society. To listen to Lever Time Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now, take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at levernews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello with help from The Lever's lead producer, Jared Jacang Mayer.